it's interesting I suppose we would have had like lots of near misses with Gary because I suppose we are like I suppose I always kind of thought of him as like a cat with nine lives he just had so many near-death experiences like from his teens right up until his his day that he died um be it on motorbikes or um being unfortunate to be a pedestrian that got run over like he's he's just had so many incidences throughout his life um and so I suppose growing up at home if the phone rang in the middle of the night we knew it was him we knew that something serious had happened to him so I was already in a heightened, heightened uh, alert when it came to my brother Gary. Hello and welcome. My name is Liz Gleason. I'm a psychotherapist who specializes in loss and grief. You're listening to the Shapes of Grief podcast. Shapes of Grief is a curation of stories from international guests who share their unique experience of loss and grief. It's a privilege to hold these conversations and I extend my deepest gratitude to all my guests. I know that some of you listeners want to learn more about this landscape of loss and grief. If you're interested, check out our online grief training program on shapesofgrief.com. And please do sign up for our free masterclass available at the link in the show notes. And in the dead of night, my darling, find the gleaming eye of starling, like the little aviator, sing your heart to all dark matter. Welcome everybody and I'm delighted today to be joined by Vicky Lanan, creative arts therapist. Vicky, you're very, very welcome. Thank you, Liz. Thanks for having me. Vicky and I know each other, um, for those listening, through the organisation that we're both members of, IACAT, which is the Irish Association of Creative Arts Therapists. I started my therapy career as a drama therapist and uh, our paths have crossed through IACAT at various conferences and AGMs. And I was also interviewed by Vicky a couple of years ago now on Vicky's podcast called Embrace Therapy Podcast, um, where you were interviewing me about my experience of loss at the time, both personally, I think my father had just died, yeah, and professionally true. about my work um, as a professional in the area of grief and loss. So today we're, we're swapping hats. Yeah. I'm in the interview seat, and Vicky is interviewee and we're going to be speaking today about sibling loss. Um, Vicky's beloved brother died a few years ago now. And also what was supportive, what wasn't supportive, and the trajectory of, I suppose, understanding your grief and integrating your grief that you took, Vicky. Um, so thank you so much for being willing to be here today. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, yeah, it's it's uh it's interesting being on this side. You know, I'm usually on your side, as you said. Um, but no, I'm I'm really happy to to get into it and to help in any way that I can by sharing my story. So yeah, super. So Vicky, I know that uh, you're a mom and you're a creative arts therapist. You're also a podcast host, and you're also a sister. Yes. So what happened? a few years ago, Vicky, 
Um, so I have um, three older brothers. I'm the only girl and I'm the youngest. And our eldest brother, Gary, actually, um, he was the one that passed away. So he, he died in the, on the 3rd of December, 2010. Um, and Gary was 37 years old at the time. And uh, it was really sudden, like a really big shock to the whole family. Um, I remember it was during that really big snow and myself and my now husband were together in a in a flat in Wexford Street and we were throwing snowballs out the window and like having good fun and we were just kind of staying up late anyway because it was a Friday and uh, we're having good fun and then my phone rings and it's my brother end and I'm like oh why is he ringing me and I pick up the phone and he's saying oh um will you let me in I, I can't get a bus home so I just was like, okay, that's fine. He must be, you know, on a night out. And um, I just buzzed him in. And then my brother David and my brother Enda, my dad and my mom came up the stairs. And I fell to the ground. It was just, I just knew. It was like, what other reason would they be here for? Only that Gary's dead. Um, so there had been a how fire. did you know how did you know I don't know it it's interesting I suppose we would have had like lots of near misses with Gary because I suppose we are like I suppose I always kind of thought of him as like a cat with nine lives he just had so many near-death experiences like from his teens right up until his his day that he died and um, be it on motorbikes or um, being unfortunate to be a pedestrian that got run over like he's, he's just had so many incidences throughout his life um, and so I suppose growing up at home if the phone rang in the middle of the night we knew it was him we knew that something serious had happened to him so I was already in a heightened, heightened uh, alert when it came to my brother Gary. Mm. Um, but, was there a reason for that Vicky? Um, I suppose when I was growing up he was 16 when I was born and that was quite a big gap so he would have been in the house for two years of my life and then was pretty much moved out and all the experiences and interaction I had with him would have been like him on the weekends or um, him ringing because he needed like you know a bit of help or whatever to mum and dad but he was quite a chaotic kind of person you know he had a lot of um I suppose unhealthy tendencies so it started with alcohol and then it went into drugs so but I suppose to kind of go back a little bit as well it's like all those near death experiences were probably just that kind of fast pace of his life as well do you know it was just he was always kind of coming and going in my life as well so um you mentioned there, Vicky, that you were already in a state of high alert mm -hmm. because of different incidences that had occurred. And I just want to really acknowledge that for a minute because mm -hmm. there's so many people I support whose loved ones haven't died, but they're almost waiting for them to die because of mental health issues that aren't being properly supported because of addiction issues that aren't being properly supported. Um, and it's an incredibly stressful 
painful, difficult situation to be in. And because everybody wants to find a solution, everybody wants to fix it. Everybody says, if only they would just dot, dot, dot. <laughs> um, and I just want to really acknowledge that, that some families live in states of high alert, anticipating disaster or tragedy for years or almost decades. And it's a painful place to be in. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I suppose because of the age gap as well, I didn't really digest that until much later in life, you know? So my relationship with my other brothers is very different. And I know who they are, they know who I am, but my my lived experience with my brother Gary is so different in that way because he was always coming and going, uh, never a constant person in my life. So when on December 3rd, um, that day when my parents came up and my family came up the stairs, I suppose knowing my history, I, I bodily, I just knew. And I just fell to the ground and it was just instant, just like roaring, you know, that real, like, I don't know, it was just such a body experience, you know, to just feel that grief and be floored by it. Um, and I didn't know, obviously, at that time what had happened, but it, um, it ended up being that he was um, unfortunately caught in a house fire. Um, and the whole house, it's a beautiful Georgian house um, in Dublin and the basement had bars on the windows. So unfortunately, he couldn't get out um, himself and one other person were the two fatalities in the house fire. Everybody else actually managed to escape. They threw out, you know, mattresses and jumped on them and um, the snow was was good I suppose in that way if they did have some burns on their hands or anything like that it was it was quite nice relief for them but my brother you know the fire department did find him quite near the door he was crawling he was trying to get out you know this image of him in my head of like at least I know he wanted to live that he was trying so hard to get out and he knew what to do he's a very intelligent man you know you know he knew that that was the way to do it and um but I suppose uh, it was just it was just a lot to take, you know, because it was unfortunately wrapped up in this new story between me and Gary, um, where we had begun to reconnect to actually, you know, he started to take a real interest in me because I had moved out of home. I was living like 10 minutes away from him he wanted to get to know me and we had arranged to do a 12 pubs Christmas the following night and I have loads of text messages from him about how excited he was going to you know be, be invited you know because I hadn't really invited him to things before so this is the beginning of something new and I think that was the biggest part of me that I needed to repair you know that 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 part of me that was like so excited for the new beginning you know that like mm. oh, maybe we can we can be brother and sister now you know maybe we can give this a go um so part of a grief your grief was the loss of the future 
the loss of the potential that was just starting to bubble up for you both. Mm, yeah, yeah. That was really difficult for me, like going forward then, you know, thinking about like what ifs and the might have beens and um and then the kind of missed opportunities of what a brother-sister relationship could have been if he didn't lean into drugs so much, if he didn't drink so much, if he didn't have to run away from things, you know, like how would it have been, you know, growing up with him like I did with my other brothers, you know, so there's a lot of um, missed opportunities that I, I will never get, you know, so, yeah. Vicky, you said that when you knew he had died, even before you were told or you knew the circumstances, you had this physical experience where you dropped to your knees. Would you describe that? Would you describe what you understand was happening in your body or what was going on there? Um, I think in that moment, my legs just actually didn't work. I couldn't hold my weight and I think I needed like I think it's a real thing like that we all have in us that we need to be grounded sometimes and I think that's what happened it was like an instant like you know it was just in a second and I was on the ground and there was no choice in it it just happened um and I, I know that um, I was really loud and I'm a very quiet person. So whatever roar I left I let out, my um, my now husband, Stephen, he ran out of the room to come see me because, you know, he got such a shock. You know, he thought it was just going to be my brother Enda coming up the stairs, you know, and he was in a different room. And uh, when he came in and heard me crying, you know, he really thought something awful had happened. You know, he just knew as well. This is the sound that I made. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. a very particular sound, isn't it, Vicky? It doesn't come from the larynx. No. It's like it comes from your soul or your entrails or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I, you know, it's funny. I was teaching, as you know, this this last week. And we spoke about this. We spoke about how we're animals you know we're you know we are mammals on the earth and our response to loss is very it's very basic and physical when we allow it yeah. and the price we pay when we suppress those whales and those yeah. physical reactions and mm -hmm. um, but i'm grateful for you great grateful to you for just sharing that um, because it just normalizes it and it is quite a normal response to have this wail of despair that comes from deep within um, on receiving devastating news like that. Profound loss can rock our inner world. It's confusing, life-altering and often scary. You've probably already figured out that there are no stages of grief. But are there other models, theories, tools or practices that can help us to navigate the grieving process? To learn more, visit shapesofgrief.com. As Liz says, the more people who are grief trained, 
the more supportive and compassionate our society will be. And that will make life so much better for anyone coping with loss and grief. Now, let's get you back to the podcast. Vicky, you've told me before that you went through different types of therapy and trying to process this loss. Could I ask you first, what made you feel like you needed therapy? Because not everybody does. What what was grief like for you? What was the grieving process like for you? I mean, you obviously had a supportive family. Mm-hmm. You had a supportive partner at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Why you needed more and what was going on for you? Um, I think what I noticed then was... Um, I didn't have the words to describe how I was feeling. Um, it was very much in my body and I kept getting um, like night terrors about it, you know, trying to piece the story together, you know. Um, and I was curious about alternative therapies because it's something that I then eventually decided to go into and at the time I was working in um, a creative arts facilitator role in hospitals so I had met creative arts therapists and I decided to go down that road of therapy so first seeing an art therapist who I suppose it's when I think of it now, didn't do anything wrong, but just wasn't the right approach for me, where you are to make an image, but the therapist actually sits far, far away from you and doesn't look at the making process, which is a type of approach that some art therapists take, where they even sometimes they leave the room in the art making. I couldn't bear that distance I couldn't bear having my back to someone and feeling that des- disconnect it was just it was almost re-traumatizing it was just too much um, yeah. and it really shook me yeah so it wasn't a good approach for me um and can I assume that that therapist regardless of modality wasn't grief trained I, I, you know, maybe not, or maybe, you know, people get so stuck in what they do um, that they don't see every person's story as different. You know, they kind of like, this is what I do. This is what I offer. What are then kind of meeting the person where they're at? And yeah. I really needed someone to actually just sit with me yeah. um, and maybe even draw with me, you know, like to kind of, be in it a little bit with me because I felt very alone with my grief so well even just there and I know I'm getting technical here but it's like I know I can with you because you're a therapist also it's you know you you said how that experience of being left alone in therapy was almost re-traumatizing and it's like you you've talked about the physicality and there were no words like it's a severely dysregulated body because of the the shock and devastation you've been through. And we know that one of the biggest protective factors is co-regulation, 
is connection. It's the presence of other people with a settled nervous system who, who can meet that dysregulation and help you feel safe in a moment. But I suppose it's the difference of having a grief-aware and trauma-aware therapist versus not. Um, it's not the modality as such. But yeah, the importance of overriding your tools and techniques yeah. to connect with this human in deep distress. It's not about the story that you've been through. It's not about the modality that I offer. It's a human being in deep distress that needs the comfort and presence mm -hmm. and holding of another human being. Yes, that's mm. all I really, now looking back on, that's all I was really kind of going for. You know, there was something in me that knew I couldn't sit and talk with someone. <laughs> it had to be something else. And um, yeah, it was, it was unfortunate that this actually meant that this experience meant that I didn't look again for a while, you know, for therapy, because it was just, I don't know if cold is the right word, but it was just a little bit too harsh for me at that time and uh, didn't give me the holding that I needed. So I did continue to look and I did find someone who also uses art in their process and art therapists as well. And um, knowing that there just were no words, I literally could not talk about Gary's death for a while, you know? Um, so then I began that journey and, and that ended up being quite a long one. It was nearly three years, but when I think back as that time and the things that really helped, it was actually very much out of the therapy room as well. So I'll give an example. Um, so the house that um, was uh, where Gary was living was actually owned by my dad. And he, um, you know, he, he would have rented the rooms out and everything and, um, Gary was kind of there as like a caretaker role as well you know he he had um kind of helped out a lot with with dad with the keeping of it but because it was so um like it, it was such a strong fire I can't describe how like it, the whole house was gutted like they had to like my dad had to go back in and rebuild it so I decided that that kind of approach would suit me and I just said this sounds really great so I went in with my dad and we began to share the space in the basement where Gary died and there was there was just there was no plaster left on the walls it was just bricks and my dad was cleaning it clearing it removing all the debris and in this, I decided that I would do something in the space. I didn't think it out. Like, there was no, like, I just was drawn to doing it and I did it. But I started to get pieces of, um, like, old bikes and things like that that I could find in, in the area. So I went to, like, Bibsborough and, and got loads of bikes. And then the man who helped um, 
pull out some of the people from the house, he helped me weld the pieces of the bike together. And together we were telling stories and he was sharing how horrible it was for him to see what he saw, showed me the, the burns on his hands. And, but it, like, I know it might sound kind of weird, but I actually felt really safe there. And talking about it was so important to me in my process and knowing everything was quite important too, you know? Um, but anyway, I ended up building this with a lot of help, um, this uh, bicycle tree. And it lived in my garden for years with hanging baskets and bird feeders. And, you know, it was quite big. Um, but there was something about making it in his room where he died and bringing it home, uh, this kind of object that I could kind of have um, and watching life kind of interact with it in my garden for years was so lovely um so I found that particular piece really healing and doing it alongside with my dad you know kind of rebuilding this house you know so, so your dad was in there rebuilding the house and you were in there rebuilding some sort of a connection with your brother yeah I didn't know what it was you know yeah Kind of understand it now but at the time I don't know why it, you know it just it just was something that I was kind of drawn to do um so it was it was wordless it was beyond therapy it was an expression some way of expressing and rebuilding you say I didn't know at the time but you know now would you tell us what you know now about that process and what do you think you were doing unconsciously? I I think I couldn't quite sit with just the feelings I had. Like I couldn't just continue life with those. I had to do something. And knowing that my dad was facing this every day, I was like, if he can do this, I know I can do this. I want to face it head on but the way that my dad does it as well is very like you know there's a purpose to it and I knew that if I could build something alongside his process that that would be very comforting um, and now I know that for me I I kind of need those kind of experiences of connection to to really feel whole again you know I, I can't I can't do that work alone you know yeah. do you think it was your dad's presence that that, that facilitated you doing this my dad's and then knowing that Gary's presence was somewhere in there as well you know that like yeah, I don't know. It's a weird one. I definitely, my dad's process, I really wanted to be close to him, you know, but there was something about the place where Gary died and how I wanted to change it a little bit for myself as well, you know, kind of, yeah. yeah. You wanted a thing of beauty to come from it. Yeah, I really wanted to change it. Um, and then again, that wasn't conscious. That's just now kind of looking back at it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there was no um, 
plan, <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah. It made me, you know, when you were talking there, Vicky, it made me think of something that Basil van der Kolk shared. And I hope I have the details right here, but I think it was in Puerto Rico after one of the hurricanes. And he was invited out there as an expert psychiatrist in the aftermath of the trauma. Um, and I know you know this because you've done the Shapes of Grief training program. You've probably heard me describe this before. But when they got there, the community had organized themselves and they were rebuilding and helping each other. And, um, you know, everything like was devastating and in control in a way that somehow that community knew what they needed to do to rebuild. Um, but when these aid workers arrived, they said, stop rebuilding because we need to assess the damage so that we can get the right amount of funding. And it was actually when people were, were prevented from rebuilding and reconstructing and using their bodies um, that everything went to pot and all hell broke loose and there was looting and there was violence and people turned on each other. Mm -hmm. So there is a natural innate response to tragedy and devastation if we can get out of the way and let our bodies do what they need to do. And, you know, I believe that sitting in therapy for many people is, is, is not the right answer. I mean, it can be helpful, but it's not the only thing that's therapeutic. And you've shown that going back to the spot, creating, building, reconstructing, in doing so, connecting with other people who were involved that night, that's what brought you healing and hope. Yeah, yeah, it really did. And um, and as well, like, you know, it's, it's so interesting when I think of all the pieces of this story, like... <clears throat> the person that I was seeing for therapy um, was actually right beside the place where I saw Gary laid out, like, you know, it, the, the matter uh, hospital mortuary. And I would have to drive past his house to get to this uh, place, this therapist. And then sometimes I'd have to walk by the place where I saw Gary laid out as well for years, <laughs> you know, like this, um location of this therapist and again it wasn't conscious but I had to go past you know to and from one of the places no matter what way it was either I turned left and go past his house I turn right and go past the hospital um and there was something about that being important as well of not in a in a nasty kind of masochistic way of, of like having to see this place but to reconnect with it to to change it to to appreciate the kind of um healing that I was on the healing journey I was on and that the wounds were still there but you know I was doing all I could to to help myself you know um and, and I suppose when we say healing we don't mean make it better and no. it's gone and it's cured, you know, yeah. grief doesn't work that way. But somehow it's like we find our feet again, we can navigate the world again, 
the loss is always there but you know something is we're we're we're, we're rebuilt in a way or reconstructed in a way to carry it and i suppose that's what we mean when we say healing it doesn't mean it's gone yeah no. this means it's manageable bearable yeah exactly um and then after after doing that kind of imagery and art making it was noticed when i did go and and, be, and do the training to to become an art therapist myself that um i would find blockages and like even i remember the second year of my masters i got really sick and was hospitalized because my kidneys were really struggling you know and and that was grief when i think of it in the timeline and everything that was the you know two years later and and i could really feel like i was holding so much um and then i decided to change my approach and and actually start to dance you know to like to move my body with intention and so i saw a, a dance movement therapist and then i became really clear on my um ritual again after you know because with the last one it was going past gary's house with this one again not conscious but only now in hindsight thinking of all of this i went to the sea and i swam after every dance movement therapy session no matter what time of year like i would go to sea point and i would swim and it would, would mean that i would be an extra hour and a half late coming home you know it was quite a lot sometimes but moving my body and moving it out was so important for me. And the sea and that coldness, I found it very helpful. Um, and again, no intention behind it. Just I, my car would be driving me there and I'd be like, oh, I'm going to the sea again. <laughs> you know, there was nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like just this innate knowledge after I dance and move with my grief. Uh, it, it's almost like a cleansing. It's almost like the dual process model we talk about at the therapy. You're confronting your loss, feeling the loss, and then restoring in the sea, resetting the system, stimulating that vagus nerve and coming down into your ventral vagal from your sympathetic arousal, right? Um, could you speak a little bit about the dance movement therapy, Vicky? Yeah, of course. Um, it was for me the most powerful approach to this because it had been so, and I think I think when I think of it now as well, it's like it was that piece of me, that younger child that didn't really know her brother, <laughs> you know, and the physical relationship that I had when he came into the room or anything like that. I think it was a lot of that grief in my body and I think that dance movement therapy helped me to kind of bring that into my awareness a little bit more um and it, it wouldn't have necessarily have been named in sessions you know it was very ambiguous but again it was touch because we would put our feet together we would put our hands together I would lean into the therapist it was all very tactile and I needed that and it took me some time to get it unfortunately but that approach was just so tremendously healing for me because I needed that connection and touch and 
to be seen and witnessed in my movements of, you know, again, just, just innate movement. There's nothing in dance movement therapy that is like, let's do this dance move. You know, we're not doing that. It's very much just closing down the eyes, connecting to your body and, and just gently moving. Um, I found it really, really powerful. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was good. Power of somebody's presence, the connection, the physical touch. It's interesting because we often learn in therapy, you know, you don't touch the client. And, you know, this is one of the things I was teaching this weekend. How is psychotherapy, as we know it, different when somebody's deeply grieving? And it's almost unethical not to touch, I think, you know. Yeah, yeah, I do think so. Um, because in, in, my, in my story, that was exactly what I needed, but I didn't know that that's what I needed till I got it, you know what I mean? And, um, and again, you know, when we have this uh, idea of what a therapist is, that they're, you know, someone we don't really know and we can tell them our things and they hold it for us and that's it that's the relationship but for me I don't want just that I, I want a, a relationship that is equal and a relationship that is um caring and you know human like you said Liz you know it's just I just really want that connection I want as someone as close to me as I can fathom, you know, in, in a space that I can be vulnerable in, you know, and uh, it took a long time to really get that. And when I did, it was just glorious. Yeah, it was gorgeous. Um, I'm so glad you found it. And I'm, I'm so glad that there's somebody in Ireland, you know, <laughs> who's offering this because I know when I did drama therapy 20 years ago, there was one dance movement therapist on the island of Ireland. So um, that that's really wonderful to know that person's out there and was able to meet you in that space. And at a certain point, Vicky, you felt you needed talk therapy. Yeah, so after the dance movement therapy, I got married, I finished my master's, I had uh, a baby, I started working as an art therapist. I felt really great. And then the pandemic hit. And COVID really brought up all the grief again in my body. Mm. And I think I had the words then, you know, I, I was finally able to like talk about Gary openly with people, talk about the experience for me and talk about the effect it had on my family and even now the next generation too, you know. Um, but because I had words and experiences, I, I decided to reach out to a, a talk therapist. Um, I decided to go for um, a male and, and to see what that would be like. Um, and again, just such a gorgeous experience, you know. And for two years, we met through every lockdown. It would be my consistent thing that I did. But their approach was... I nearly had a friend do you know what I mean like it was just somebody who we would talk about our experiences of grief 
Um, no, he wouldn't share very often his experiences of grief, but he did. And they were really helpful because there was moments where we just sit back in silence and we'd be meeting each other in that place. And it was really helpful, you know. And you said earlier that was really important to you was to meet another human. Yeah. Like it sounds like you you didn't want that power dynamic that often exists where the therapist is silent and quiet and in inverted commas all knowing you just wanted to meet another human that could meet you where you're at and it sounds like that bit of self-disclosure from the therapist was helpful to you yeah it was definitely yeah um because we all have our own grief stories everyone like nobody's untouched from from this and I think when I brought up Gary and and anniversaries and predictions of you know oh his anniversary is coming up I I want to make sure I get in, in touch uh, with my therapist again just make an appointment and 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 just kind of give myself that kind of buffer you know that and and he would be the same when it was his you know he'd be like oh my you know my mother's anniversary is coming up and you know this kind of thing you know um just lovely um so that common humanity was important to you yeah to know that this is a thing that us humans go through mm-hmm. and we share this mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. it's lovely you've brought us through you know all these different approaches and if you were to summarize you know say there's trainee therapists or counselors listening to this and you were to summarize what worked for when I say worked I do air quotes but what you found beneficial or helpful in your experience of a variety of approaches to therapy I'd love you to summarize it and and just to say that I suppose the our therapy approach and the dance therapy approach are very much bottom-up experiences. So we're coming like from the body, from um, just our own impulses and intuition and what needs to be expressed. And then talk therapy is a top-down approach where we're making sense of our experiences from our brain um, and personally for me I love a dual approach you know where's there where there's a bottom-up approach to exploration and touching on grief but then that we have a top-down meaning making process making meaning of that experience and so we're integrating that innate expression that physicality our nervous system and what's happening in our bodies, but we are using our brains and our minds to make sense of that. So for you, Vicky, would you would you summarize what was helpful and useful for you in all of those approaches? Having someone sit alongside with me, um, be it on a chair or I often sit on the floor, um having someone go with me in in the space so if i'm 
let's say with the, the art therapy, I loved sitting on the floor. The therapist would follow me onto the floor. If I was moving, the, the dance movement therapist would gently decide if they would follow me or, you know, there's just something about the nonverbal parts of the interactions of being alongside someone. Um, and then just that gentle gaze that I got, you know, that really a lot of empathy because they're seeing themselves as well in my story, you know, that like I can see that in their eyes. Um, and like not to be fearful of the silence because most of my meaning making is made in those silences. You know, a lot of the integration happens in those. And they're not the all-knowing silences where you're waiting for the therapist to interject and, and give some advice and feedback. It's not like that. It's a silence that is like you're bopping along on a wave. You know, it's kind of that. It's it's not anything else. It's like you're here together and we're bopping along. You're not alone in it. Um, and I really appreciate those kind of approaches. I, I love the the meaning making from the, the top down part of like the therapist naming what they see in me that day because I might be so out of body in in the in distress sometimes you know with the grief um that they might be able to at least say what they see and then I can kind of understand that oh that's where I'm at right now and then to name what they see as I'm finishing up it might be very different and that's gorgeous information for me you know so I think yeah, that, that would probably be my summary of what I found really good. Yeah. And Vicky, if you were to talk about sibling loss particularly, yeah. what's unique about losing a sibling that's maybe different to other losses? Um, a lot of people call sibling loss a disenfranchised grief because it's rarely acknowledged. There isn't a word for it not an orphan you're not a widow there isn't a word that exists for losing a sibling and it's not something that as a society I think we honor as much as we honor and respect and acknowledge other losses mm -hmm. and often people say it all the time when someone's sibling dies the common response is oh how's your mom mm -hmm how are your parents and it's it's so minimizing to not say I'm so sorry your brother died how are you how is this for you so what was your experience of other people or the world when your brother died it was I suppose a bit different to other bereavements because we all met in my parents' house and it was very much the door open and people coming in and out. Gary wasn't there, laid out there, but you know, the, the place where I grew up was quite a tight knit community. But I was always told, Oh, you make the coffee by another neighbor, you know, you do this and, and, and it is another job. You have to help your mom out, you know, this kind of thing of like 
you need to step up now, Vicky, you know. Um, I wasn't given the the space, I suppose, that um, one might, might think that, you know, you, you might get for grief. Um, it was- You were there to protect your mother, not to be a bereaved sister. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, it was only when a friend showed up with some clean t-shirts and clean jeans for me that I actually got at least one person recognized that I wouldn't be even thinking about things like that. So like she gave me clean clothes, <laughs> you know, just really like, and, and she also has three older brothers as well. So we, we, I think she really understood the tremendous loss. So she gave me those kind of things and was just there. Like she didn't leave. Um, so that was beautiful. Just this person that was there who would maybe even go and hold my hand sometimes. She was just really lovely. Um, but then once, you know, a month goes, it, there was no one there except for my partner, you know, that, that was really there. And like my brother, my brother is definitely grieved differently. You know, one brother, um, just pushed through and the other brother was really con conscious I suppose of, of me and would check in on me quite regularly and would talk about Gary non-stop would do lots of photography around Gary pulling up old pictures connecting with the past and stuff like that so it was nice that I knew that I had my siblings there too, but it was just, it wasn't, there was no naming of it. You know, the, like even that, like, you know, how are you after losing your brother? That wasn't asked, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. So yeah, different. Did that, did that make you angry? Did that change relationships for you? Yeah, I think, you know, even now, like I can think there, there were maybe two or three aunts that were really lovely. But again, the focus wasn't on us children, you know, like it was very much on my parents. And I wasn't angry at the time because I was also very caught up about my mum. And then later my dad, when I went to start, re, you know, building things again. But I think the anger probably didn't come until two years later when I was saying about the kidneys I think it really took me some time to get in touch with that and my process of anger is always I go mute I go very nonverbal, and it's all internal like you know my stomach gets upset and all this like so my anger is very restricted um so I've done a lot of work around my voice with that, consciously working out my anger, because there is anger for sure. Um, I think the most anger that I still kind of have would be that, why did I not get to um, have the relationship? You know, that's the main anger is like, you know, didn't get to really know him very well yeah. it seems like you it was important to you 
to know that Gary wanted to live and was trying to get out. Yeah. Would you say why that's important to you to know? I think when you have someone who's misusing drugs and alcohol most of their 20s and into their 30s, the character that's depicted is always like, they're not worthy of your time or they're bad, they're bad news, you know, this kind of thing. And I suppose I didn't get the opportunity to like really see his goodness. And I was very much protected being the youngest and the only girl as well. Um, but I think, you know, knowing that he did fight for his life means that there was care and there was choice. And I think the decisions he made with drugs and alcohol was not like a reckless, I don't care about life or living, but I think it's the only way he could have survived, you know, because the when he was 18, I think he was coming home from the devs and got run over by a car and, he was in a coma for two weeks and you know a lot of brain injury he wasn't in himself from then on but I would have been only two you know two and a half and um, so there's a nonverbal piece you know that there's a lot there as well and I don't know much about that time and what it was like but the way it was depicted for me is that he stopped caring about living and was very reckless but then in the last hours of his life, he still fought for life. So I think there was something in that for me that that was important, you know. Yeah. He had a pub crawl to do with Vicky and he was trying his yeah. best to get out there. Yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it? Like, mm. you know. Um so and I got, oh gosh, I remember like he had left me voice messages and I would listen to them again and again and again, you know. Um, so, but, you know, there's, there's a lot to his story that is still quite ambiguous and unknown. And I don't know if I'll ever really get to fully uncover it all. But yeah. um, I just make meaning with what I have and what I hold dear is that, you know, he he made art I have a lot of his pieces and like you know even his bass guitar he'd like splash paint on it and I have that you know and my little one sees it and you know always talks about Gary and you know we talk openly about him you know so mm. that's, that's important too I love that idea of the guitar up on the wall yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Vicky, do you think the fact that Gary used alcohol and drugs impacted how people responded to you on his death? Perhaps, like, you know, because some of my friends would never have even met him, you know? Like, there was some people that were in my life that um, would only have heard of him briefly, you know? because he wasn't really a massive part of my life and then you have the neighbors who would have seen him growing up and seen him 
doing the bad things or whatever you know down the backfield having a drink or you know whatever it was but like I do think yeah it definitely would have made things a bit difficult yeah for people yeah um I found that a lot of people actually did only want to talk about him when he was a child yeah you know so that's interesting as well just not quite wanting to talk about the adult it's another factor that definitely comes into the mix and I know I've supported people who've been bereaved as as a result of drug use where maybe somebody has overdosed I know that wasn't the case with Gary um but it's like a layer of shame that can come in and you know not wanting to talk about the manner of deaths or perhaps the death is minimized uh, he's better off now, or he was a burden to you, or some of these awful things that people can say because they stop seeing the person, they stop seeing the brother or the son, and they almost dehumanize them to an addict or an alcoholic. Yeah, um, yeah it's it's certainly something that some people require support in and therapy to work through those pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, but like I say, because of the manner of Gary's death, maybe you were spared some of that. Yeah, I think we probably were. Yeah, you know, um, we did have to go to an inquest, which was horrible. You know, this thing of like, you know, was the fire, you know, um, in arson is that the word that you say like did yeah so there was a bit of that and that was horrible and there was like articles written in the paper and everything about it like that wasn't true and you know other people on the road where, where Gary lived giving their story and you know oh, it's just it was awful there was a lot of murky waters around that time about it as well because the unknown of how the fire started but we eventually found that it was just him falling asleep with a cigarette, you know? Yeah. And he did have drink on him, but my mum and dad were happy. There was no drugs in his system, of course. You know, this thing that parents love to, to, to know these things. But yeah, things matter. And it's, yeah. you know, it's interesting what you say there about the media and reporting yeah. And untruths, you know, one perspective or a version of a story, and it can be so exacerbating, and this can really impact grief moving forward. And these are the things that keep it awake and alive, and keep that knife twisting in the in the wound. Um, and I wish people were more considerate with their reporting. I'm sorry that happened. Yeah. Um, it was it was fine. It was what it was, and I suppose when you when you can know the truth, because you know it was it was obvious for the firefighters. It started in the bed, so you know that 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 kind of was clear, you know. Yeah. But um, there were stories, and 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 that that happened, you know, this kind of thing. Um, but I think you know when I. When I'm asked, like by my siblings, and I am often asked, like, is this why you're an art therapist? <laughs> you 
you know, is it because of Gary? And I, I think it's not because of me um, going through this loss of Gary, but actually the fact that I know that he found art really helpful in his life. And I have like one of his paintbrushes, I have it in my therapy room and it's lovely to see like like people using it and stuff. Like, I think it's really nice. But I think that's the main thing is that like when he was well, it was because he leaned into something like art making and, you know, his music. And, you know, I think that's the part that I'm connecting to, not the fact that I want to like, you know, fix people that are misusing drugs you know it's not that because I could I would never judge people for that you know so um but it, it sounds like a lovely way to continue a bond with your brother yeah, yeah. Vicky that was 2010 that Gary died yeah. 2023 now how yeah. how are you now how does grief change over the years or how has it changed for you how has the grieving changed for you in a little over a decade? I think for me, it's it's still in my body. <laughs> I still have to mind my kidneys. I still have to mind my throat. But other than that, he's very much part of, you know, my everyday life because I'm still doing art making and, and things like that. And even though I'm not consciously thinking of him anymore in the work, you know, it's still very much part of me. Um, like, you know, even my wedding day, I had a, a framed photo of him there and there wasn't really a sadness present, you know, it was, it was fine. You know, all those kind of big occasions, the birth of my daughter and everything, you know, it would have been nice for him to be there, but there's no like heavy sadness around those moments anymore you know that they weren't but I think the the complicated parts of his story and the disconnects that we had over life they're the parts that are you know still in me that I'm still have to be quite tentative to um but I think I I will continue to obviously talk about him with my little girl and um with my nieces and nephews if they feel like you know I can I, I know I can you know, tell them who their uncle was, you know. Um, so it is definitely easier now, you know, but like that, just being mindful of those little moments where my voice is weakened in some way and I'm paying attention to that and noticing what I need to do. Um, what do you do? Yeah, I, um, I sing, I gargle, I... I um I kind of would tentatively like you know even my scarf you know I'd put lots of color around my neck on those days um but yeah I do find singing and like you know I love like even gargling between clients if I feel like I'm really feeling something with a client I might do a quick gargle with kind of tepid water or whatever and I find that that really helps it's just the intention that I set I suppose with that you know yeah. The awareness that, you know, there, there's grief or uh, some sort of energetic response collecting at your throat. And this is something we often hear people describe that lump in their throat. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if I'm supporting people in clinic, the 
and they're they're talking about their grief and I might say where do you feel that they'll often say in my throat or in my chest um and people often lose their voice at times of immense loss as well that's been me <laughs> get sore throats yeah so it, it is amazing how much the body keeps the score as Bessel van der Kolk says um and it's so important to to nurture and care for our bodies at times of grief and to listen to them and allow them to find ways to express if that's the way we do it. Yeah. yeah. Vicky, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Liz. Thank you for listening and yeah, for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Shapes of Grief. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice. So if your grief is making you unwell, please do see your healthcare provider. I know that some of you want to learn more about the experience of loss and the process of grieving, either for yourself or for someone you support. You can become grief trained by signing up on shapesofgrief.com. Use the code podcast15 for 15% off today. The beautiful music is called The Lost Words Blessing, and we have kind permission to use it for the Shapes of Grief podcast. Until the next time, from me, Liz Gleason, take really good care. Enter the wild with care, my love, and speak the things you see. Let new names take and root and thrive and grow. And even as you travel far from heather, crag and river, may you like the little fisher set the stream alight with glitter may you enter now as otter without falter into water look to the sky with care my love and speak the things you see let new names take a root and thrive and grow journey on past dying stars exploding like the gilded one in flight leave your little gifts of light and in the dead of night my darling find the gleaming eye of starling like the little aviator sing your heart to all dark matter
swim you deeper, oh my little silver seeker. Even as the hour grows bleaker, be the singer and the speaker. And in city and in forest, let the larks become your chorus. And when every hope is gone, let the raven call you.